0: Providing a solution to handle that fear for people, whether it's children or whether it's women that want to go out on a date and not be attacked, you know, that's a it's a real it's a it's an achievement for me if I can if I feel like I can make people's lives better by reducing their fear.
1: Welcome to a new season of the Digital Irish Podcast, a show about Irish innovation with interviews with entrepreneurs, innovators, creators, global leaders. This show is brought to you by the Digital Irish Network, a not-for-profit organization whose mission is to promote Irish innovation, innovators throughout the world. I'm your host, Dave Byrne. This is the second episode of the second season of the Digital Irish Podcast. And today's episode specifically revolves around a topic that is so important. Over the time of COVID, we've seen more younger users using digital platforms, using technology, and for an extended period of time. This is causing a lot of concern for parents, especially around things like cyberbullying, grooming, the person that I spoke to the, this week, uh, Rena Maycock, she is really tackling this head on with her new company, Kilter, um, where she's the founder and CEO. Kilter uh, is such a fascinating entity because firstly, it's really kind of approaching minor safety from new and unique angles and angles that a lot of Tech folks may have not thought of as being possible or may have seen as too big of a challenge. And Rena spends a lot of time really discussing that. And um, Rena, as well, is a fantastic person to chat to. You can really hear her passion come through for the topic. You can really hear how much she has put it into researching this and making sure that she's building the team and building the company to tackle this head on. Recently, she was actually named in the Sunday Independence Top 30 Women in Tech. I thought this was a particularly fascinating conversation. I hope you do too. Our guest on today's show is Rena Maycock. Rena has done an incredible amount in her career. She was the chief executive officer at iRadio Ireland. She was the founder and is currently the non executive director at IntroMatch. She is a business columnist at The Currency. And most recently, she is the CEO and founder of Kilter. Now, if you haven't heard of Kilter, they are developing child protection software for Android that keeps children safe from bullying, coercion and grooming, and also aims to help prevent child suicide by alerting parents to imminent threats presented to their child via their smartphone. This is hugely important in this day and age, especially in the time of COVID, as we all seem to be on our devices more so than ever. So, Rena. My pleasure. Welcome to the show. Thank you for inviting me. Rena, I'd love to start off with a little bit about your career because it seems like you have quite an entrepreneurial spirit. Where do you think that came from?
0: Well, originally, I have to admit, you know, in the early part of my career, I was very, very happy to be an employee. In fact, I couldn't comprehend why anybody would want to start their own business and not have a guaranteed paycheck at the end of every month. Um, But that kind of changed when, you know, I worked my way up the ranks. I had started off in, you know, sales jobs, and then I held a a number of sales management and directorships, and then found myself as CEO of a media group, and I was doing monthly board meetings. And I started to look at the directors around the table who had been investors in the company. And I thought, wouldn't it be wonderful to be the decision maker here? You know, calling the shots ultimately. Um, and I my mindset set started to change and I realized I wanted to be the, the in control of my own destiny, if you like. And I had started to, you know, uh, ideas had started to ruminate for me um, and, you know, ultimately took the decision, uh, myself and my now husband, to, to start up businesses of our own. I, so I guess that ultimately it came down to I thought to myself, I'll never be that director around the table, calling the shots while I'm somebody else's employee. If I want to make that type of money where I can become an investor in other people's businesses, I'm going to have to take matters into my own hands. And that's where the the entrepreneurialism started.
1: I love that. It's not just about being your own boss. It's also about calling the shots and having control over your own work. That's great. One thing I wanted to pick your brain on, going back to intro match, I imagine that the matchmaking industry, safety needs to be a part of that as well. You know, people feeling safe, connecting with others. Was this something that was top of mind for you? Was safety top of mind here as well as with Kilter?
0: Yeah, I mean, one of the reasons why we set up intro matchmaking was because, you know, We did think to ourselves, this was, you know, back in a time when online dating was hitting its peak and it was um, there was an awful lot in the news about the dangers posed um, through online dating. And, you know, we decided to set up intro principally because, you know, we could we could check IDs on people's behalf and we could organize the dates for them. So we would almost be the, the chaperone in the room, even though we weren't there. We were organizing things and we had a huge amount of, of data on each other. So the likelihood of any sort of attack happening or anything like that was was significantly reduced. So, you know, I've, I think I've always been somewhat intrigued by safety because I find that fear is it's such an inhibitor. You know, it can it can really be a hindrance to people achieving what they want to achieve. You know, fear of being attacked might stop a woman from going out on a date with a stranger and therefore she might end up on her own all of her life. And, you know, that translates really with Kilter. I think it's it's possibly... It's not something I'd actually thought about before the relationship between the two uh, t- types of business. In actual fact, I was thinking about my Twitter handle earlier on, and, and and my description is, you know, I'm CEO of a child protection software company. I'm a columnist at uh, business publication, The Currency, and a matchmaking uh, company founder. And I actually have in that handle how random, um, because I did think it was random. But actually, now that you pointed out, there's a there's a real link there. Um, so yeah, I think providing a solution to handle that fear for people, whether it's children or whether it's women that want to go out on a date and not be attacked. You know, that's a, it, it's a real, it's a It's an achievement for me. If I can, if I feel like I can make people's lives better by reducing their fear.
1: I love that mission. I may just capture that and put that at the beginning of this podcast I want to shift gears a little bit now to Kilter itself, and specifically, I'd love to take you back to the moment that you realized that Kilter isn't just something that you wanted, it was something that needed to be done. Could you give us a little bit of background as to where and how this idea came about?
0: Yeah, it's a good question. In actual fact, it wasn't anything to do with with, uh, with child protection software at the time. I was pregnant with my son and I kept getting served the image of Alan Kurdi. Do you remember the little Syrian boy that washed up on the beach in Turkey? Yeah. And I was heavily pregnant and pretty emotional. I couldn't help but get very, very upset every time I saw his image and it kept being served to me. So I looked around for a filter on Facebook and Twitter so I could continue using social media but not be disturbed by this image. And I couldn't find a filter. So I asked some friends in the know and they said, no, I'm not aware of any filter. But if you find one, let me know, because I'm always getting served images on stories I don't want to see. So I realized then that it wasn't just me. You know, there was there was a real market there for data curation. Um, so I kind of left that idea be. And then I had my son. And when I became a parent, my perspective changed entirely. And all of a sudden, all I could see were headlines of children that had been sextorted from, coerced, driven, cyberbullied, systematically driven into suicide and self-harm. And, you know, there was a common theme. And that was that by the time the parents found out that there was a problem, the horse had bolted and it was it was far too late. You know, the child had been driven into something, you know, irreversible. So I revisited that idea I'd had for a filter. And a friend of mine in tech said, look, what you're talking about is a really natural fit for a parental control. Why don't you look in that space? So I took a deep dive into the parental control market and I found that the Tools available for parents were all app based. So, you know, at the time, I'm not a technologist. So at the time I had to, you know, figure out why there was no solution for cyberbullying and grooming. Because I looked into the research and there was a web-wide study done that found that parents had four main concerns when they gave their child a smartphone: that they'd access pornography, that they'd spend too much time online or be groomed or be cyberbullied. And they were of equal concern. But when I looked into the app stores, you know, there was maybe 250 parental control apps in Google Play, maybe 220 in, in the Apple Store. And all of them shared a variety of features. You know, they had geofencing and geotracking for your child. They had restriction of access on app and on device, and they could all block pornography sites. They shared these features so they could cope with pornography and restriction of access to stop the child spending too much time on their device. But none of them could tackle cyberbullying and grooming. And I was like, why is this? Why are... of parents need not being met by this market. And when I started to teach myself about the technology, I realized that apps operate on a peer-to-peer system, so they can't access data within other apps. And it's through messaging apps that cyberbullying and grooming happens. You know, it's not in public fora, really. It's in private messaging apps. So apps just lack the technical capability of accessing messaging apps, so they can't tackle cyberbullying and grooming. And I thought to myself, Wow, you know, there's an opportunity here. This is my inner salesperson, and I was thinking, you know, if if I build this, people will come. Um, so I tentatively started to dip my my toe in the pool of technology, and uh, and it's been a roller coaster ride ever since.
1: That's really fascinating. Uh, I want to make sure that I capture those four areas of primary concern for parents because I haven't heard it being described so succinctly. So there was cyberbullying and grooming, which are two areas that the current solutions aren't tackling. And then the other two were pornography. And what was the final one? Accessing pornography and spending too much time online. So parents were just
0: worried their children were getting addicted to social media and phone use. and you know that has a, all of its, its its other concerns. And there is you know robust research to suggest that you you know you should limit your child's time to a degree, to a degree online. And that, and actually that has been demonstrated by COVID, which has made the situation worse because since COVID, children are spending way more unsupervised time online, and that has uh, contributed to a sharp increase in online child abuse material and an increase in cyberbullying. So you know those fears parents have, you know they're legitimate but that restriction of access is overserved by the parental control app space whereas the others cyberbullying and grooming aren't tackled at all
1: i imagine as well for things like cyberbullying and grooming I, I always imagine that for services that offer controls such as a time on site that these services are never going to be able to solve for cyberbullying and grooming, because it doesn't matter if you're online for 45 minutes or two minutes, you could still experience some level of cyberbullying or grooming.
0: Theoretically, yeah. Um, But look, the problem with um, grooming and and cyberbullying is it's so pervasive. It's so, you know, subjective. Um, You know, a parent might be looking at a message that might look completely innocuous. But if they're only looking at one message in isolation and they're not looking at, say, for instance, the pattern of the messages, then they might be missing the fact that their child is being groomed because groomers are excellent at circumventing any sort of, uh, systems that might, you know, trigger something. So, you know, they're very good at instructing children, for instance, on how to take a nude image without that nude image being triggered as a sexual image by any sort of filtering software. You know, and other things like rumors generally follow a pattern. You know, they can send one or two messages to a child in a week, very innocuous messages that would never raise a red flag. You know, what's your favorite subject at school? That kind of thing. And this can go on over months so that they gain this trust of the child. And eventually when they gain the trust of the child, they get a secret from the child and they use that secret to elicit an image. And then when they get one image, they use that image to blackmail the child into more images. And this is how you get this kind of, this roll-on effect. But at that point, once they've gotten that, to that point where they have the blackmail for the, the child, they can then move up into, you know, four four or five hundred messages in a day. It can get that much. So the pattern analysis is equally as important. The content analysis,
1: if you will. That is scary. Mm. That is really yeah. scary. Um, I want wonder- to address one thing that you mentioned earlier, you mentioned that you are not a technologist. When I think of this topic, I imagine a lot of people working in tech may think these challenges are too difficult to overcome there's there's too much here. How do you think your entrepreneurial spirit and your non-tech background, has helped you overcome these challenges and really tackle them head on?
0: You know, I think it's been a a real blessing. While it's been a very steep learning curve for me, I very much came at this from a salesperson's perspective and as a parent as well. So as a buyer, Um, and I thought to myself, you know, there's clearly a market here, a really obvious market. And I, in, in truth, Dave, I never get any pushback on the product. As soon as we say we're developing child protection software that detects and blocks cyberbullying, grooming and suicide and self-harm. Everyone's like, I get it. Give it to me. I'm going to buy it. Take my money. So we never get any pushback on it because it's such an obvious solution that people want. Um and I think not being a technologist was a blessing because I was never hamstrung by the notion of what was the status quo or what was possible, technologically speaking. And people ask me all the time, why is nobody else doing this? Surely somebody else is doing it. And the answer is nobody's doing it because it's hard. You know, technically it is hard. It's If you take, for instance, an app, you can build an app that has no disruption in it and you can launch it to the app store and let it generate some income, and then you can start to in, improve your product incrementally. Ours is embedded. It has to be embedded because at the application layer, we can't access data within other apps. And that is the key. We've got to be able to get inside apps, including and particularly encrypted apps. And the earliest point in the technological stack that we figured out that we could do that was at the kernel level. So, and it's difficult to get in at the kernel level because you've got to go as a factory fit, right? It's got to be embedded. So it's the road less traveled. And that's why people aren't doing it is because it's, it's that tough. You know, you've got to get the buy-in from the OEMs. You've got to get the buy-in from the telcos. And your model is totally different. It's not a B2C model, it's a B2B model. And that's very unusual for the, the parental control space, which is all, is all B2C. So we're very much the outliers and it's very different, but that's the way it has to be to get this solution to work. So I, I remember even in the early days, after we had proven and we, you know, Anybody can go to our website and have a look at our demo in action. We decided to prove kilter working, filtering WhatsApp messages first, because we knew if we went for SMS messages or messenger messages, the first question we would get would be, yeah, but what about encrypted apps? Because ultimately, that's where the real danger is for children. So we decided to go full steam ahead and and demonstrate the the product working and uh, filtering WhatsApp messages. And I would show that, you know, in the early days, I showed it to technologists and they were like. That's not possible. I'm like, you're looking at it. (laughs) What do you mean, that's not possible. I'm showing you. You know, I'm telling you how we do it, you know, broadly. I'm not giving you a full technical walkthrough, but this is how we do it. It it is possible. We've patented it, so it is possible. And we've demonstrated it. There you go, look at it with your own two eyes. So you'd be absolutely staggered, the level of disbelief we would get. Now, granted, there were other technologists that were like, wow, that's a really cool approach. You know what, I explained it to them. But others were like, no, that's not possible. So certainly not being a technologist has gone in in my favor because it allowed me that freedom to barrel through because I thought to myself, if there's such a big audience or or market for this, and people will buy it and they clearly will. I'm going to barrel through and find a way to do it. And that's exactly what we did. So it was absolutely a blessing rather than a curse, despite the fact that I had to educate myself very, very quickly. And I'm, I'm still doing that. But also, you know, people also like from an investment perspective, people like, you know, a commercial CEO. They just like a commercial CEO. So that's been a benefit, too, um, that I haven't been. You know, we've got an amazing CTO and that's great. And we've got an amazing head of AI. I don't need to get into the weeds in the the technology as long as I can explain it from a surface
1: level perspective. It's fine. Um, But, yeah, it's been an absolute blessing for me. Did you find then when you were building the right team, finding the right CTO and the head of AI, that you were coming across people that were initially thinking, oh, maybe this is impossible, or maybe this is just too much work, and then subsequently were then buying into the, the vision?
0: To be honest, our team are very, very invested in child protection. And that goes for our CTO, our head of AI, for instance, our head of AI wrote the algorithm for the hate track tool that was developed to detect racially motivated hate speech on Twitter. So he's got an amazing pedigree in the detection of harmful content fields, um, which is fantastic. And, you know, our CTO has three kids and has had direct experience of, you know, cyberbullying in schools, that kind of thing. Um... You know, and then we've got all of our, 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 our the rest of our team, our, our head of child protection, you know, worked in Interpol, you know, and for six of those years worked in, you know, crime prevent- online pr- crime prevention against children. So really, you know, we've got a 10 strong team and we're here we are two years down the line and everybody's getting, un- is unpaid <laughs> and working in some cases around full-time jobs. And that takes dedication, you know. So I suppose the one thing that we have going for us is that, we may not have money, but we've certainly got purpose. And so we don't find it that difficult to get people to row in and help and to get behind us. Because, you know, if you take, for instance, if you're a technologist and you work for, for one of the big tech companies and, you know, you, you know, you might think to yourself, OK, eventually I want to get out of this. You know, the golden hand, handcuffs here and I want to go and, and, and make a big societal difference. We tick that box, you know. So in fairness, that's our our, our big uh, marketing tool from an attracting talent perspective is that, our we are, you know, we are mandated to be a very commercially successful business, but we also have societal goals that we have ourselves, you know, internally, for instance, within six years, our goal is to be protecting at the very least 15 million children. Um, and then we, yeah, obviously we've got our revenue forecast as well, which is very important, but, you know, we have that other mission too, which is, which helps us.
1: Wow. That's fantastic. Uh- I find that very interesting because I think that's also an interesting learning that a lot of entrepreneurs and startup founders can learn from as well, that if you are really driven by the right purpose, that you can find people that are right for the business who are also driven by that purpose. I love that you touched on the golden handcuffs. I used to work at Google myself. And I loved Google, I loved the free food and all of the perks, but there's definitely something different about people when they're working for a purpose and they have a vision rather than just working for a company. You really do see a different kind of energy from them and a different kind of engagement. One thing I wanted to touch on, because you have this lofty goal, this aspiration to protect 15 million children plus. Do you and the team feel a weight of responsibility to get this right?
0: Yeah, and it, it is a big responsibility. Um, You know, when you look at the victims of... of of these three problem areas of cyberbullying and grooming, and then suicide and self-harm. You know, these are issues that can destroy entire families, you know, pull families apart. Uh, It can be, they can be life and death. And for some reason, you know, it has been left for 30 years, more or less, access to information has been unfettered. And it has probably taken COVID to make legislators stand up and and, and force things through. I mean, you could see yourself that big tech were, you know, constantly being invited to make change and tackle bad content. Um, And it just wasn't, the needle was not moving. And, you know, in a way, COVID has been a terrible thing, but it has most certainly moved the dial on the legislation Um, Now, that's going to force big tech to move harmful content off their public platforms. But even the legislation can't compel them to look into encrypted apps. And we specialize in that. You know, we can look into encrypted apps. So, you know, we're gearing up to be the compliance measure for this legislation. There's, There's a lot of legislation. There's the Online Safety and Media Regulation Bill. There's the Digital Services Act. There's the EU Strategy for a More Effective Fight Against Child Abuse. There's a lot coming down the track, and we're getting ourselves geared up to be the compliance measure for when that legislation comes into force. And there's a heavy weight of responsibility that comes with that. So, you know, we're we're saying, yes, we're going to be this, this compliance measure. We'll be ready to deal with this when bad actors move their terrible content off public platforms into encrypted messaging. But then we're also thinking, you know, we need to make sure that we get all this right. Now, People have said, you know, there's a real risk component to your business, because what if you get something wrong? What if you miss something? And I keep saying we will miss things. It is not going to be possible for us to be a substitute for vigilant parenting. You know, a technological solution, it would be irresponsible of us to say we'll catch everything. Go and relax there as a parent. We'll, we'll take over here. That's not our message and it never will be. We will not go to market unless we're at 75 percent detection efficiency, human level detection efficiency, ultimately, because we can't, you know. And as such, you know, we've been kind of we are a B2B SaaS product, which is all very sexy and investors love B2B SaaS product. They love a you know, recurring revenue model, which is exactly what we have. And theoretically, you know, we'll scale rapidly because our model is so different to, the, to our B2B competitors in the parental control space. But ultimately, you know, we we can't do it unless we're at 75% detection efficiency, but that still leaves 25% on the table. Now, the product will learn, the solution will learn because there's a machine learning component to it. So, you know, the richer the the, con- or the, the, um, the content the more de- detection efficiency will grow, the more robust it will come. We may even get to 99%, but there will still be that 1%. So we'll always be saying we are a tool. We'll try as, and come as close as damn it to, to perfect, but in, we never will be perfect. So there's always going to be this continuous R&D element to us updating our databases to make sure that we keep abreast of trends. Because as you and I both know, trends in children, even in, in their, their language they use, in the you know, the the usage patterns around apps, it, it changes on a daily basis. So you've got to remain on top of your game across all languages that you serve for all of these different domains. So there is this kind of constant R&D component to us keeping up and making sure that we, we retain our detection efficiency. But there's always going to be something left on the table. So the message has always got to be, we will do our best to be a tool for you you've got to remain vigilant you've got to have open communication with your children you've got to make sure that you're still kind of you know if they're young you've still got to be looking at their at their phone and making sure that there's nothing kind of dangerous there just in case we miss we do miss something so yeah there is a you know there's a real there is a risk there and there's um you know that burden of responsibility is absolutely there but we have to deal with that in in our messaging and be really careful that we don't Lead parents to believe that they can kind of switch off and just give their child their smartphone and uh, and let them run riot. They can't.
1: It's funny because the way that you've described this, with the seventy five percent detection rate, the focus on children's well being and mental health, and the constant investment in research and development. It, it sounds more like a medtech, a medical technology solution, um, and it, it seems like that it, it would be different to what investors would expect from a B 2 B SaaS solution.
0: It's a really good. It's a really good point because. We do, as a B2B SaaS product, we do get lumped into kind of, you know, the type of expectations from a development runway perspective, from a go-to-market perspective as a traditional enterprise SaaS product, for instance. But we do need to behave with the same type of rigor as a medtech. We're more like a medtech product in terms of our development runway, because we'll have to apply that same rigor to our testing before we go to market. You see, with a, with an enterprise SaaS product, there's an impatience to get to market. The expectation is you can get something, roll something out within six months. But we can't release a V1 to market and let the users work out the kinks. And then by the time we're at version nine, we've got a perfect version. We've got to go to market with as close as diamond to a perfect version as we can, because you're dealing with children's mental health. You know, and that's a sizable component. You know, for instance, you know, we've been dealing with the, the HSE here, the health service executive, and they recognize they don't have the data to back it up, but they do recognize the fact that there's been a CAMs, which is the Children's and, and Adolescent Mental Health Service here in Ireland, is heavily overburdened and under-resourced. And over the last number of years, the demands on that service have increased rapidly. And the HSE would acknowledge that the increased demand on those services, you know, in some part is due to smartphone use, the increase in smartphone use. You know, you've got 25 percent of six-year-olds have their own smartphone. You know, 93 percent of eight to 13-year-olds have their own smart device. And along with that ownership comes certain dangers. And that's in exposure to grooming, cyberbullying and suicide and self-harm content. So they would acknowledge the fact that our solution will help them reduce the burden on those waiting lists and reduce those waiting lists because we'll be a a preventative measure in the fight against children's mental health deterioration, if you like. Um, So, yeah we do need to behave like more like a medtech product. And, you know, that's probably been one of our problems is getting people to kind of understand that.
1: That's fascinating. And just as you were talking there, aside from the challenges, you've said you've done a lot of research into this area and you can really hear it as you've been speaking. You've only been doing this for two years now, but you're speaking about policies, legislations, government organizations, big tech, there's an awful lot there. So I wanted to jump back to a fact that you mentioned that during this time of COVID, all of this in regards to the policies, the legislations and everything else has been expedited this year. What has this been like for you right now? trying to build at a time when there's uh, when it's more important than ever.
0: You know, it seems like for two years, we've been in a perpetual state of fundraising um, with varying degrees of, of, uh, of reaction. Um, You know, usually that we're too early stage, Um, but that has all changed. You know, at the start of this year, we got some real traction and we've been building on that momentum. You know, the stars seem to be kind of aligning for us and, You know, I'm ashamed to say it, but unfortunately, COVID has been, you know, the making of our company. And that has contributed sizably to the traction that we're getting because of the sharp rise in in online child abuse material. And the fact that it has woken the beast of the European Commission and they are now expediting all this legislation. I mean, if you take the online safety and media regulation bill you know, that is promising GDPR type fines uh, on big tech. Um, And so that is, you know, 20 million or 10% of turnover, whichever is the greater. So those figures are far too big for big tech to absorb as a cost of doing business. They have to act or they will have to when all this comes into, into law. So they'll move that harmful content and that harmful content won't go away. It'll slither into encrypted messaging apps. And that is, from a legislative perspective, out of the reach of big tech, because the legislation doesn't compel big tech to look inside encrypted messaging. So they'll be in compliance. And you'll have seen that, although Facebook announced this a long time ago, it's hit the news again, their intention now is to encrypt Instagram messaging and also Messenger. And it is, you know, one could consider that to be a cynical way of them getting around filtering messaging apps um, because, again, the legislation doesn't compel them to get into encrypted apps. So that and then the Digital uh, Services Act has. so, So that online safety and media regulation bill, all of that, those EU directives, that means big tech are, you know, the, the age of them taking responsibility for removing harmful content is coming and it's coming fast. And it means there's more of a demand for encrypted apps. So that has or uh, solutions that deal with encrypted apps. And that was actually mentioned in the EU strategy for a more effective fight against child abuse, which was announced last July. And they said they wanted to investigate technology that could deal with end-to-end encryption. So that has opened the doors for us in the European Commission, you know, with the cybercrime division there, So the legislative demand, the opening of the doors with the European Commission, and then you've got the Digital Services Act has removed our biggest risk. So our biggest risk previously would have been the exposure to Google, um, because they're proprietors of, of AOSP, and we're developing for Android. And you know, investors would have said to us before, "What if Google stand in your way?" And we would say, "They're unlikely to do that because PR isn't intrinsically linked to share price these days." So, what would the public think if Google stood in the way of a bona fide solution to cyber bullying and grooming of children? It would not look good, and um, they would say, "You know, investors would say, Yeah, I get you. I kind of agree,' but you know." you know, you can't really tell, like, it's not a guarantee, you know, you don't really know what Google's motivations are going to be. They're quite opaque. So, you know, they may still stand in your way. You're not going to be able to do anything about it because you're just a small startup. However, the digital services Act, in the digital services act, which was mooted last December, the European commission included in there the concept of a trusted flagger and a trusted flagger is an entity that specializes in detecting and and removing Um, harmful or illegal content. And that's exactly what we do. So that legislation mandates big tech to cooperate with trusted flaggers. So that effectively removes that big risk component for us, because from a legal perspective, Google would be mandated to cooperate with us. So COVID indirectly has removed our biggest risk created a legislative demand for for our product in the next kind of couple of years and it's opened those doors in the European Commission that we needed open so that we could you know start talking to the the right people about the solution so COVID has been a blessing for us and it's you know it's general because if, you know investors love a legislative demand uh you know if you look back at the you know when GDPR was coming in GDPR is widely credited as you know the move towards official, you know, cybersecurity solutions. So that was, you know, that gave birth to it. Well, not gave birth to, but it certainly accelerated the growth of of a whole industry. And if you look at the likes of safety tech now, safety tech is is really on the rise. It's the next blockchain. If you look at it, you know, the UK um, government commissioned a a study and found that safety tech uh, is going to be worth one billion in the UK alone by 2025. So there is this movement towards it's like legislation is pushing this sector um, up into the spotlight, which is great, and it's great to be a part of it. Um, and that's, you know, unfortunately, is in large part due to COVID. It,
1: it sounds like that so many forces have just come together all at once, where safety tech is no longer a nice to have, it's a must have, yep. um, specifically for big tech as well. If the Digital Services Act is specifically saying you have to do this, then tech players have to pay attention. I also wanted to re-highlight a point that you mentioned as well, that if you get fined for this and you don't work with trusted providers, that it isn't something that you can just absorb into your cost of operations. This is no longer a slap on the wrist. We're going to come down hard on you. It's interesting to see this all come together all at once now. For you personally, and for Kilter in particular, what does the next year look like? I know you recently got some funding.
0: Yeah, I mean we've got a very comprehensive development runway. We've we've got our first investor and he's a he's a really cool guy and um he did all of his due diligence and he told us we could go around town talking about him and he's got you know really great pedigree in the in the software investment sphere, which is fab. Um you know we've got other investors that are kind of in the wings waiting to, to come in and complete the round. So look in the next very short amount of time, hopefully month or two, we will close that round. We've got our consortium partnership with, with DCU. Ultimately, within the next two years, we hope to be doing our pilot program and at market then Q1, year three.
1: And if there's anybody listening to this now who could help with funding, we can put you in touch with Rena, or you could reach out directly. Yes,
0: I'm always looking to have conversations with people that have money to invest.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. But one final thing is a lot of the people listening to this podcast are entrepreneurs themselves. They are also looking for that moment where they can become their own boss and control the work around them. I loved what you were saying about the purpose driven aspect of what you are doing. From your experience of both kilter and even going back to intro match, what advice would you give to an aspiring entrepreneur or what advice would you give to yourself if you could go back and coach or mentor yourself a few years ago?
0: Um, I would say there's never a right time. So just do it. (laughs) Um, You know, it's, I always find it a great shame when I'm talking to people and they're saying, oh, I admire you for going out on your own. I had an idea and then it was never the right time. There was never the right time, but you can always find a way to make it work. You know, for instance, when we started intro matchmaking, both my husband and I were still in full time jobs. So we worked around our full time jobs. We did weekends and nights. To build the business, and then you know, eventually got to a point where the business could could sustain us, and then we just grew it. And you know, when it came to the idea for Kilter, um, you know, I was I was pregnant, and very shortly after that, um, when we decided to kind of pursue it, then I was pregnant again. Um, so there's, there's never a right time. You just do it and you make it work. And then the other thing I would say to any entrepreneur is go to the opening of every envelope. Speak to everybody. And thank you very much for your time, Dave. Much appreciated. When I go into a My room, usually well in pre-COVID times you would walk into thank an actual physical so, room so with other people. Again. Imagine. See you um, next time. I would go to all of these things, you know, breakfast, briefings, lunch, everything, absolutely everything. Anything I was invited to, I went to. And I always found a way to have make a tenuous link between kilter and the person that was speaking. And I would ask a question. I would introduce, hi, I'm Rena. I'm CEO and founder of Culture Job Protection Software. We're developing software that detects and blocks cyberbullying, grooming, and suicide and self-harm. I would then ask my question. The speaker would say, thank you very much. Oh, that sounds very good. And they would answer the question. I would sit down. At the end of that, whoever in the room that could help me would find me. So I didn't have to go shaking a hundred hands or asking questions about who was there that you know could help me expedite developing this product or getting it to market they would find me and it happens all the time all the time so that's what my, my advice would be go to everything say yes to everything have a conversation with everyone you know even if it's you know, somebody that's got nothing to do with your product. If they offer you their time, you will learn something from that meeting or else they'll be able to introduce you to somebody else that will teach you something that you need to know or, you know, open a door you need opened. And I would also pull that trick of making that tenuous link, ask a question, and then whoever can help you will find you. And uh, that cuts, cuts the networking time short and makes it more effective.
1: I think that's such fantastic advice and I don't think that there's a better way to end the show than on that note. Rena, I just want to say thank you so much for joining us today. The work that you're doing with Kilter on you know youth safety, minor safety is so so important. We know how busy you are, so really appreciate you taking out the time Thank you once again to Rena Maycock for joining in this episode and thank you to you, the listener. We hope that you found this interesting. Please subscribe to us on Apple podcasts or whatever podcasting platform that you're using. Please leave us a review as well. If you have any questions, any thoughts, please reach out to us at hello at digitalirish.com. Please also check out digitalirish.com for other events, other updates and future podcasts as well. Thank you all so much.